Thank you for choosing to connect with North Collins Wesleyan Church. We are a church of all ages that is passionate about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Our congregation enjoys worship, fellowship, discipleship, and community outreach. Our worship services are every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. found in North Collins, New York. The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Justin Leininger. Again, thank you for joining with us, and we hope you enjoy. If you've been with us at all during this message series from the book of Judges, you'll not be surprised where our message and this moment in history begins because we find ourselves at the exact same spot again. Guess what happens? The people of Israel do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And if you're wondering, yes, this is the fourth judge that we talked about. So this is easily the fourth time. It's actually been quite a few more times that the Israelites have done this. For some reason, they lose sight of God. And in this particular instance, the evil that they do in God's eyes, they, they serve the false gods of neighboring nations. And so because that happens, they fall into the hands of the Ammonites, which is one of the neighboring nations around them. And scripture says that the Israelites are crushed, shattered, and oppressed for 18 years, because once again, somehow they have forgotten about God. And I, I guess it makes sense. They don't have our scriptures, so they don't have maybe the stories of before them. Those things should be passed down from one generation to another, but somehow they do forget. And so they've been crushed, shattered, and oppressed for 18 years. And finally, they call out to God, and they have this conversation with God, and, and they decide to get rid of all these false gods and idols and things, and they basically try to free their nation from those things and serve God again. And in the Bible, it says that God could hear, could bear their misery no longer. He could hear their cries for him and could bear their misery no longer. And so it's time for another judge to come forward and to lead the Israelites to freedom. Specifically, they are in a moment where the Ammonites, they call their army together, and apparently they see the Israelites getting a little unruly, and so they decide that they are going to lead an attack back into Israel to make sure that they are under their control. And so they go to do this, to oppress the Israelites, and it is in this moment that we are introduced to the eighth of twelve judges in the book of Judges, a man named Jephthah. Now, Jephthah's story, his background is a bit different than the other leaders, the other judges that we are introduced to. Most of the other ones come with some kind of little bit of a story of their power, of their place. They, they are in this moment where they are, it is clear that they are a leader, and God calls them forward, but you can see that they are in a position of strength, of power for one reason or another. But Jephthah's story is very different because he is a social outcast. He is someone who, for the most of his life, has been cast out. Cast out from family, from friends, from the nation and the people that he calls home. And so we're given a bit of a rags-to-riches, zero-to-hero, chump-to-champ kind of story. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of like those stories. I enjoy those stories. I think that's very American, right? We love the zero-to-hero kind of story. That's the American dream, right? You're supposed to be able to do that. That's the dream for everybody. If you are a zero in America, you can be a hero, and we love that. We're excited about that. And so we see this, and I think we start to feel towards that. And, and we recognize that about our society, right? We are often told these zero-to-hero, chump-to-champ kind of stories. For example, many of us have been told that Michael Jordan got cut from his high school basketball team, right? Michael Jordan got cut from his high school basketball team, and he's the greatest basketball player the world has ever known. Like, hands down, there's no competition. He is that guy, but he got cut. 
We're also told that Abraham Lincoln, our greatest president, right? That, that's kind of not, you could debate that, but in the end, and we kind of all know it, right? Abraham Lincoln, our greatest president, lost election after election after election, right? Before becoming president. And we hear that and we're like, how is that possible? But that's why you just keep going. That's the American dream, right? We're also told that Thomas Edison is said to have failed 10,000 times before he created the first light bulb. 10,000 times. 10,000. That's a number we don't even like question. How is that even possible? But there it is. All three stories probably have some exaggeration in there, right? Did Thomas Edison really fail 10,000 times? I mean, does he have like a little notebook where he's got like 10,000 little check marks like that that happened? And, and did that really happen? Or did he just fail a lot? Did he just like try a lot of times? And, and the truth is, even if you talk to Thomas Edison, he, he recognizes it's a little exaggerated because he has said to talk about how each failure was really a step forward. And so he doesn't even view them as failures. Like he doesn't even think that he failed in all of those times. They were just steps forward till he got the completed job. And Abraham Lincoln we do realize that he won some elections along the way too, right? Like the truth is, yes, he did lose a lot, but like mixed in there, there's some victories along the way. He was successful in certain things as well. And yes, Michael Jordan was cut from his basketball team when he was at a very good school, cut as a sophomore from his varsity team, which many of us know most sophomores do, especially at a really good school, they still play JV, right? Like, it's not like you're like, oh, you're the worst, you're out of here. And, and the thing that kind of made it seem a little bit like he was cut was the fact that the varsity team did take one sophomore because they had this one sophomore who was extremely tall and they needed a center. And they were like, yes, we're desperate. You make the team. And, and Michael Jordan didn't make that cut. And that is, that's kind of normal and okay, right? It wasn't the worst thing in the world. But here's the truth. No one wants to hear that, right? We don't want to hear that side of the story. I know. I've just ruined all of those things for you, right? Like all of those big moments, they've just been ruined. No one wants to hear that. We don't know, want to know the truth of the situation. And maybe that's further true. Because when it comes to those zero to hero kind of stories, those people who have been hurt and feel inferior but rise out of the ashes of those moments, we really don't want to hear the truth of, of what it means to feel inferior, or when you feel rejected, when you feel outcast, we don't want to think about the truths of those feelings because those feelings have a way of sticking with us. They have a way of creeping into our identity or, or plaguing us all throughout life. Jephthah, he had to deal with feeling inferior for his entire life. And unfortunately, it led him to a very horrible mistake. Jephthah's story starts with difficulty. Jephthah is born outside of marriage. His family, his father is married, but not to who Jephthah's mother actually is. And so we'll say that his mother's trade is not one of respect. And you can read up on the story and get those details. It's found in Judges 11. Now his father had sons with his actual wife. And so when they grow up, those sons drive Jephthah away. They don't want to share what they have with someone who they feel is illegitimate and so they, they don't want to share their inheritance with this guy, and so they, they force him away. But Jephthah isn't just forced out of his home. Our understanding is that he's, in force, he's forced out of his entire community. It's not just his family that rejects him, that says hurtful things to him, that puts him down, that makes him feel inferior. It's his entire community as well. They say hurtful things. They push him out. He gets rejected, and he has to go away. 
Scripture tells us that he flees to a place called the land of Tob. Now, you don't need to know or remember that name. I just really like the way the land of Tob sounds. It makes me think of a place that grows candy canes and lollipops or something, right? Like, it's the land of Tob. And yeah, and that's just, I don't know why. That's what it makes me think. So, so he goes to this land of Tob, this wilderness place with candy canes. And now the moment comes when a judge is needed to lead Israel. The Ammonites are on their way to invade, and they need a leader. And in this moment, Israel kind of says, whoever will stand up and step up and lead us to victory in this battle, they're going to become our leader. They will become our judge. They will rule us in this moment. And they make this statement. And then what's interesting is Scripture doesn't say anything about anybody stepping up. And so apparently they make this statement, whoever steps up is going to be the person in silence. No one wants to do it. And so what we find is, is that God is with Jephthah. And so the Israelite leaders reach this point where they journey to the land of Tob. I imagine you have to skip there, so I see them skipping there. I mean, it just makes sense. It's the land of Tob. And so they journey to the land of Tob, and they seek Jephthah out. And at this time, in Tob, amongst the lollipops, Jephthah has become a bit of a gang leader. This is real. The Bible actually says, and I love this, the Bible says he is the leader of a gang of scoundrels. Yes, scoundrels. Yeah, that's pretty amazing, right? I almost wish they used the word scallywags or something. Like, it's just, like, you get that nature, right? Yeah, he's leading these scoundrels in the wilderness, in the land of Tob with candy canes. And you know, they get there, and Seriously, though, Jephthah is this leader, and apparently he's, he's risen. He is this leader, and people are attracted to him. Yes, they're scoundrels, but that's okay. He's like, he's made the most of what he has, and so he's there. He leads, and so they go to him, and they say, Jephthah, we want you to be our leader. So there's two things that we see in Jephthah's response to the Israelites. The first thing is a really good thing. We see from his words that he has faith in God. He knows that if he's going to be victorious, it's going to come because God is going to lead him to victory. God is going to provide the victory, and that is a really good thing. But the second thing we see is we see that the way they treated him, having rejected him, having outcast him, having sent him out, having hurt him, having, having said that you are inferior, you are insignificant, we see rightly and relatably, right, that he has some doubts about what that means to himself. Those things have been internalized and they are real. And so he has some doubts about the Israelites' feelings. And he, he turns back to them and he says, you're really going to let me lead. And if by God's doing, we win, me, who is insignificant, who is illegitimate, I will still be your leader. I'm going to be that person. The guy you kicked out, drove off, cast out. I'm going to be that leader. His feelings make complete sense, right? Up to this point, Jephthah's life has been defined by being unwanted, feeling inferior, facing rejection, and knowing by cultural standards, by the Israelites' cultural standards, he is illegitimate. There's that dream side of us, right, that, that loves the story of Michael Jordan and Thomas Edison, that dream side of us that says, look at this incredible trial and moment that Jephthah has to overcome. We just think, oh, he can just brush off those hurts. He can just brush aside those feelings, those hurts inside. Yeah, just brush those away. Get rid of them. That's okay. And he's just going to step forward, and everything's going to be perfect, and it, it's going to have that Disney kind of ending, right? And we, we want that to happen. 
But the true side of us, the truth side of us, knows that those are internal feelings. The things that are said to him, the way he's been treated, the way he's been pointed at and pushed down, those are deep cuts and those are experiences that would stick with anyone. Experiences that attach to our identity, to how we view ourselves. Jephthah has been cut deep. The scars are deep. The feelings are real and they don't simply go away. He feels he wasn't born right. He was unloved and unwanted by family and his community, his people, they rejected him as well. For so many of us, I recognize that we feel this too. Our identity has been defined by rejection, by feeling unwanted and unloved, by the belief that we, for one reason or another, are inferior and and illegitimate. Our stories may feel close to Jephthah's for one reason or another. That's why this book of Judges and each of these characters is so amazing because their stories are so relatable. We may have those feelings because of our birth or it could be because our family rejected us or deserted us or simply never seemed to be happy with us or it could be from our community that our lives have never stacked up to others or reached where we should be or we always felt like we were in the outside looking in. This is what I want you to know at this point and I encourage you to lock this in your heart and to remember this. Those feelings are real. They are legitimate feelings. They are hurts and they are deep. And, and we recognize this truth. Those kinds of feelings and hurts, we can't simply brush them off. We can't simply just brush them off and say that they don't matter, that they don't impact us. And I am, and I know God is, incredibly sorry that you have been hurt. God is incredibly sorry that you have been hurt. But here's the good news that I can give you. God understands your feelings, and he still sees incredible worth and value in you. No matter the situation around your birth, no matter the feelings of your family, no matter the rejection of the world, God sees your worth, he loves you, and he wants you to be a part of his plan. He wants you to be a part of his plan. Despite all that has happened around and happened to Jephthah, from illegitimate birth to family and social rejection, God had a plan for his life. The feelings Jephthah has, the hurts, they are deep, and so are ours, and and we know that they are. God knows that they are, but God wants us to know that we were meant for more, to not let ourselves be held back, that we were meant, you were meant for more. Jephthah was meant for more. The Israelites give him the best guarantee that they can, and so He leaves the land of Tob, and I'm sure that was really tough because of all the lollipops or whatever he found there in that wilderness. But he he leaves the land of Tob, and he comes back to Israel, and he takes this position of leadership. He tries initially to make peace with the Ammonites, and and he tries to send this letter, and he sends this nice letter of, of why they should have peace, but it's rejected. It's not interested. The Ammonites, they are coming to invade. And Scripture tells us in that moment that the Spirit of God, who's with Jephthah, takes hold of Jephthah, and he leads, he leads the Israelites to war. He leads them to battle. This is the moment, as we've seen from the other judges, we recognize what's going to happen. Israel is going to win. God is with them, and that is all that matters as this is shaping up. And so all is shaping up for right. This is going to be great. But one small thing. Something about Jephthah, something from his past, probably those feelings of inadequacy, illegitimacy, of rejection, 
It leads to him not quite believing in himself or believing that he is enough. And he really thinks that he needs this win to be fulfilled. He needs this win to prove his, his worth, to prove his value to Israel, to, to, to cement his place in their community, to do that. And so he does something rather rash. The Bible tells us that Jephthah makes a vow to God. I'm going to be honest with you. When it comes to working with God, God makes a lot of promises. And what is always encouraging and smart for all of us in Scripture, we see this, is, is to depend on God's promises and to try not to make any of our own because that doesn't often work well. And that's, that's not really how it's supposed to work. And so Jephthah makes this vow, and honestly with it, God doesn't ask for it. God, I don't even think really wants it because when you look at the nature of this vow and the nature of God and God's commands and God's roles and his place in the world, God, I don't even think, I don't think he needs this, wants it. I don't think he agrees with this vow. I don't think God wants anything to do with it, but Jephthah feels that it needs to be done. He's got this insecurity and so he needs this and so he makes a vow to God. He says, God, if you give me victory, in this. If you give me victory, whenever I return home victorious, the first thing that comes out of the door of my house, I will sacrifice to you. The first thing out of the door of my house, I will sacrifice to you. Now, I don't know what you're thinking, but my brain is thinking, what? That's a that is not a great idea, right? Like, you're just going to leave that to chance. The first thing that comes out of your house, that could be anything, anything. But Jephthah thinks he needs to make this vow. He doesn't believe uh, that he is enough in who God made him to be, and he makes this vow that you can already guess is going to haunt him in a very big way. Why would Jephthah do this? Why would he do this? Because I believe because he felt inferior. He felt he needed this win to prove that he mattered. To make people appreciate him. To prove his worth. To be enough. And so he made this rash vow. It would seem crazy if it wasn't so clearly, relatably, and honestly human. If we didn't try to do the same in our own lives all the time. Because of the rejection we have faced because of our feelings of inferiority, because of our need to be accepted, to be appreciated, to be enough, we try to prove it. We try to prove our worth, our value to the world around us. How true is this? I don't know if it's true for you, and maybe it's not, but I know this is true for me. I'll admit it. I try to prove my worth all the time to my family, to my church, to you, to the community around me. I try to prove that I am of value and of worth, and what happens. When we try to prove our worth, when we try to prove our value, it hurts. We work hard. We put all this pressure on ourselves. We stress ourselves out. Then basically one of two things happens. One option is that we fail. That we fail. And that basically clarifies what we feel about ourselves all along. Well, I'm just not enough. Look at me. I know I'm a loser and I lost. And I know that's my truth. I'm not enough. No wonder people have rejected me all my life. No wonder my family doesn't love me. No wonder this is my truth. I've lost. And then what happens? The big pity party begins, right? It's time for the pity party to begin. The other side, the second option is basically just as bad. In fact, it's almost worse because it creates an unhealthy pattern. 
so we succeed. We do something good. But when we place our identity and our ability to prove our worth, to prove our value, it's never enough. We have to keep proving that worth, right? If, if it hinges on me proving my worth to you, I have to continually and continually prove it. The appreciation is never enough. That victory is never enough. We become self-obsessed and our victory is needed at the expense of all other things. Yes, I'll sacrifice whatever comes out of the door of my house because I need this win. I need it. So I'll sacrifice whatever comes out of my house. And the unfortunate truth is the people we're trying to prove our worth to, the people we're trying to get to change their feelings about us, in the end, it's not the world around us. It's ourselves. It's our own hurts and dark feelings that we can't live up to those hurts it is ourselves the problem has never been what others think about us it's always been about what we've allowed others to make us think about ourselves let me say that again the problem has never been what others think about us it has always been what we allow others to make us believe to make us think about ourselves i want to encourage you to listen and And just lock away a few of these thoughts in your heart. First is this, you can't prove to other people that you are enough. You can't prove to other people that you are enough. You weren't meant to do that. And and they weren't meant, other people, it's not their job to make you feel like you're enough. That's not their responsibility either. We recognize this, people will love you or they won't. They will love you or they won't. And And they shouldn't love us because of what we have done or what we can do. They should love us because it's what Jesus does. There's some incredible truth in that. And I encourage young people, but I encourage everyone to remember that. You don't need to earn or work for someone else's love. That is not how love works. You shouldn't have to give of yourself, of your body, of your heart, of your things, so that someone else loves you you. That's not how love works. We love because he, because Jesus Christ, because God first loved us. That is where love comes from. We should never have to earn someone else's love. And so young people, but all of us, I encourage us to choose our relationships wisely. Choose people who we surround ourselves who love us because they know that love is what life is about and they love us for that reason, not because of what we can give them, what we can do for them, what we can provide for them. That is not love. That is not love. Either way, we do recognize this. Yes, we need the care of others. We need the love of others in our lives. Yes, it does hurt when others don't love us, care for us, and appreciate us, especially those people close to us in our family who they just should, right? But they still don't, and that hurts. But in the end, what truly matters is not how others see us, but how God sees us. I want to encourage each and every one of us to lock away in our hearts this truth, that our identity, and it's why this series on identity is so important, because if our identity is found in how other people view and see us by by trying to get that love and that care, we will always find ourselves feeling 
empty. But when our identity is found in God, in who he created us to be, in who he made us to be, in who he loves us and has sacrificed for us, he views us that way with that amount of love, that is where our identity is supposed to be. And that is what allows each and every one of us to not just survive, but to thrive in life. My wife, Julie, is a marriage and family therapist, and she talked with me recently about how recent psychological studies show that the greatest input into our happiness is the compassion that we have for ourselves. Let me say that again. The greatest input into our happiness here on earth is the compassion that we have for ourselves. Meaning, will we forgive ourselves? Will we value and see worth in ourselves? May we shape how we see ourselves, not by the value of others, but by the value that God sees in us. And that is my encouragement for you. May you shape your identity, not by the value that others see in you, but by the value that God sees in you. Remember Isaiah 49, verses 14 to 16. I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation because I love how it says it. It says this, it says, Yet Jerusalem says, yet Israel says, The Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. And God replies, Never, never can a mother forget her nursing child. Can she feel no love for the child she has born? But even if that were possible, I would not forget you. See, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. You are written on his hands. Right now, God is seeking you because you are worth seeking. You are worth saving. You are worth loving. You are worth dying for. That is your identity. That is your identity. You are worth dying for. Scripture tells us that Jephthah led the Israelites to victory. He set them up for him and the next three judges after him to lead the Israelites to 30 plus years of peace. But Jephthah probably never felt what he should have felt from that victory. When he returned home, the first person out of the door of his house was his only child, his daughter. Scholars still argue at this moment of what Scripture really means when it says that he sacrificed her. Did he actually sacrifice her or did he just sacrifice her in terms of giving her to service to God? We don't really know, but either way, he lost his only daughter, his only child. What have you been sacrificing to prove what you are worth? What have you been sacrificing to prove to others what you are worth? What have you been sacrificing to prove to yourself what you are worth? Your worth has already been, been proven by the incredible sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. God is seeking you. He is saving you. He is loving you. So what does this mean for us? All through writing this message and preparing these words, I was thinking about my wife, Julie, and about her life. I know many of you don't know Julie's story. Because of addictions and selfish decisions by others in her early life, her earliest memories, her earliest childhood memories are clouded with abandonment and with rejection. Parents who abandoned her, close family who rejected her, 
growing up feeling inferior and inadequate. She is described to be growing up in one house or another, doing everything that she could in that house to not make a wave. That was her goal. It wasn't that she, she didn't want to even be enough. She simply didn't want to be an inconvenience to the people around her, the people who were supposed to love her and care for her and hold her close. She just didn't want to be an inconvenience. I don't know those feelings personally. I don't know that rejection, but I, I could see it in her and I could see at times that it is still there. Even to this day, she has monthly or weekly moments where she has to swallow one gut punch or another from family who seems to not care, not see, not appreciate, not love. This is why it amazes me that every day my wife is filled with such strength, such care, and such compassion for others. She has every reason to only be able to think of herself, but she continually puts others first. And I ask myself, Again and again, how is that possible? It is possible because she knows that her worth isn't found in the opinions of others. It's not found in a a family that has abandoned her and left her to go, but it is found in the love of her God, her God who sees her, who loves her, who is even now reaching out for more and more and more of her. Don't get me wrong. I get to see behind the veil of my wife's life, the veil that maybe you don't get to see behind. I know that she battles this all the time. That rejection comes back, and it comes back in moments where she is not always prepared for. It comes back, and it strikes, and it hurts. Rejection, new and old, she faces that all the time, but she knows where her identity is found. And that is the amazing thing with placing our identity and our faith in God above. Those hurts will come our way. But if he is our center, if it is his opinion that matters most in this world, we cannot just survive, we can thrive when those moments come. Because our worth is found in the love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I see our children daily benefit from a mother who can give them everything because she is secure in God's love. This is again why it is so important that our identity is found in the God of love. Nothing else allows us to live freely and selfishly for others in our lives. I know for you this this is your truth as well. No one here can experience what you're experiencing. No one can fully know the hearts, the scars that are on your life, the hurts that are there. No one can experience those things and and, and no one else can pull you through them but you. But we recognize this truth. Your God loves you. He sees incredible worth in you. He has the opportunity to just love and hold you close if you allow him, if you allow your worth to be found in him. Your worth is in your Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves you who is right now reaching out for you, who went to the cross and who died for you. That is your worth. That is your identity. That is your worth. That is your identity. That he loves you so much that he died for you. Father in heaven, I ask a blessing on each and every one of us here, God. God, where we find our identity is so important to our lives. God, it is so easy to place our identity in 
It's so easy to place our identity, God, in the hurts that, that the world has given us, the things that the world has said about us, to let those scars, those things be made real and true on our hearts and lives, to, to live thinking that we are what others have said that we are. But God, we know that that's not our truth. Our identity, our value is found in you. And so, God, I know that those hurts are still there. I know that we can't just brush them off and we have to figure out a way forward with those hurts and those scars still on our lives and we can't, they, we just, they just don't brush away. That's not how the stories work. But God, we know that if our identity is found in you, God, we can find our way through. There is no hurt that you can't heal us and guide us forward through, God. And we place and find our faith and our identity in you. God, bless each and every one of us here with that truth. May we find our identity in your word, in your love, and in the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.